0: So, Al, you've told us all about a few different Marvel UK characters while you've been sitting in for Jay, but we've never really talked about Death's Head. I've seen him in a couple of issues of Fantastic Four and She-Hulk. What's his deal? Hi, Miles. Yeah, I mean,
1: Death's Head's a big figure in Marvel UK. He's been around since the 1980s, and a lot of British comics creators have got a real soft spot for
0: him. So he's a bounty hunter, right? Ugh... Don't let him hear you call him that. It's a bit of a sore spot. He prefers the term
1: freelance peacekeeping agent, but basically, yeah, he takes money from people to hunt down their targets. I mean, he's crossed paths with a few Marvel superheroes over the years, including Spider-Man, Iron Man, both regular and 2020,
0: and Hulkling and Wiccan. Those are some big guns, uh, so to speak. I'm guessing he can handle himself in a fight then. Definitely.
1: Though they weren't even his toughest assignment, one time he had to take down a giant, ancient, planet-eating god. Whoa,
0: Death's Head beat
1: Galactus? No, Unicron from Transformers the movie.
0: What? Wait, no, sorry, that's too early. Uh, Unicron? That's an unexpected crossover. Wait a minute, though, aren't the Transformers, like, huge? Whenever I've seen Death's Head, he's been the same size as regular superheroes.
1: Oh, that is because when he moved from the Transformers universe into the mainstream Marvel universe, he got shrunk down by the person who took him there in the first place.
0: Hank Pym? Tony Stark? Doctor Who. What? I'm Miles Stokes. And I'm Al Kennedy, filling in for J. Edison while he's on parental leave. And we're here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 404 of Jay and Miles explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to something a little different.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's not really the
0: X-Men, I suppose.
1: It does have Wolverine in it. As so many things do, particularly from around this time period, but we've been talking a few times over the last you know nine episodes about marvel u k characters and these are characters that i I grew up reading. they crossed over a lot with marvel u s characters at the time that they were being published in the early nineties, and we just thought it might be fun to look at one of the sort of big stories from that time which did involve a, an X-Men presence, but mostly it's a, an excuse to
0: take a, a deep dive into what are some kind of bonkers comics. Oh, they are so great. And we talked about, you know, which first, which Marvel UK comics to cover and then which Death's Head comics to cover. We were actually going to talk about the first four issues of the Death's Head 2 ongoing, which have the X-Men in them. And that's that's a good story. It's a perfectly fine story. It's enjoyable. But the Death's Head 2 miniseries that introduces that incarnation of the character that takes place a bit before when the X-Men show up, I just fell in love with it. This is some grade A glorious nonsense in the best possible sense.
1: It is terrific stuff. Like, it's it's so unpredictable. Like, from one episode or one issue, you can have them, you know, kicking around in New York having superhero fights with big Marvel Universe characters the next issue, they're often some space fantasy land doing Robin Hood stuff. It is absolutely
0: wild and it I love it. Oh, it is wonderful. And that kind of chaos uh reminds me maybe we should talk a little bit about Marvel UK itself, because I think a lot of our listeners are are American um and might not be as familiar with what the deal with Marvel UK is. And the deal with Marvel UK is kind of a lot of different deals
1: yeah, Marvel UK, well, it started up in 1972 to reprint US Marvel stories in the UK. So it, was, it wasn't it was a company that was producing its own material at that point. It was uh, putting out reprints of um, Silver Surfer and Thor and Hulk and things like that. But because of the way that the UK comics market works like people were not would not have been used to going out and buying this month's issue of whatever UK comics were a weekly proposition so they needed to split things up in um you know, anthologies effectively it's almost like kind of a 2008 east of thing where you have more than one strip in one comic so you would have five pages of an issue of um, Thor and five issues of uh, five pages of an issue of um, Fantastic Four or whatever. You know, when, when you got into the 1980s, you had some comics that were running like five issue, five pages of an issue of Defenders, five pages of an issue of Cloak and Dagger and five uh, pages of an issue of Moon Knight. You know, it it was really grab bag stuff and it gave a lot of um, UK fans a very kind of patchwork look at what the US um, market was and what Marvel comics were like. And it was, there there were DC reprints as well, but in terms of comics that you would get on the newsstand or newsagents, it was largely a Marvel world. There was a a DC um, element as well, but um, big comics that came out at the time were things like... um, Mighty World of Marvel, which is just—it's I mean, such a great name that they, I think they may even still publish a comic called Mighty World of Marvel. If not, then they published it very recently. It's one of those names that keeps getting brought back. Personnel-wise, it had a kind of tumultuous sequence of people involved in it. So, at the outset, you had three separate um overseeing editors who were women using male pen names. So you had Petra Skingley, who became Peter. Maureen Softly used her son's name, Matt, and uh, Bernadette Jakowski became Bernie J, who worked on all sorts of stuff right through in the nineties. Um, one of the other names that you will sometimes see on all one of UK stuff is Neil Tennant, who went oh. on to edit Smash Hits and then
0: found the Pet Shop Boys. That is unexpected that's not a crossover I ever would have uh, would have assumed no he he did a lot
1: of um changing dialogue to make it more um, anglicized
0: and also covering up some of the slightly ruder women's costumes which is interesting because in the comics we're going to be covering today I mean whoa when it comes to female outfits oh uh, yeah. but yeah you mentioned the mighty world of marvel thing i remember um we did a couple episodes about the old Captain Britain Marvel UK comics, like, years and years ago. Episodes 97 and 98 of this show. Uh, I loved covering that stuff. And I, I just remember um, using the acronym MOAM whenever we were covering a mighty <laughs> world of Marvel. issue. Uh, that, that stuck in my brain. But yeah, some of, those, some of those old titles, like, there was the Daredevils, there was the Titans, not the, like, DC Titans. It was just Marvel stuff. Um, I think my favorite is Super Spider-Man with the Superheroes which sounds Mm -hmm. like a cover band that would just be in the diviest of bars, but I would totally listen to.
1: (laughs) It sounds like when a band um, fall out with each other, but they split the copyright of who gets to call the thing. Like, so we've got our band, the superheroes, but this is going to be super Spider-Man with the superheroes, like not the original lineup, but it does have super (laughs) Spider-Man still on vocals and the whole of the rest of the band has been replaced. That kind of thing. (laughs)
0: Throwing some super shade there. (laughs) So,
1: yeah, they did Captain Britain. um, Chris Claremont wrote stuff for for Captain Britain. um, Jamie Delano, Alan Moore, all kinds of people. There was one um, series, which was Spider-Man and Zoids, which, if people (laughs) remember Zoids, kind of wind up um, toy dinosaur things. Um, which was written by a young Grant Morrison and turned into this incredible metatextual thing about writers playing with toys. Just amazing. Never reprinted, but absolutely banana stuff.
0: Oh, all of the licensing stuff, and yeah, like I know Marvel UK did a lot of uh, of strange licensing stuff. We alluded to that in uh, in the cold open, certainly uh, Transformers. And Doctor Who were two properties that uh were, were big in Marvel UK.
1: Yeah, so Doctor Who Weekly, later Doctor Who Monthly, um was a, a Marvel UK publication for years. And we should just take a moment to say that I I know that I said Doctor Who in the cold open, but I know the characters called the Doctor. Don't you don't need to write in, it's okay. It, it was just funnier to say Doctor Who. <laughs> yup. <laughs> But yeah, so they had tons of licensed stuff in in as much as they, they had a comic, which was literally all they called it was the Marvel Bumper Comic, right? And I'm looking at the front cover of an issue of Marvel Bumper Comic right now on my phone and strips that were reprinted in one issue of Marvel Bumper Comic, real Ghostbusters, Spider-Man, ALF, Inspector Gadget, Thundercats and
0: Galaxy Rangers, you weren't kidding about the grab bag thing. I do remember loving that yeah. old real Ghostbusters comic, though.
1: Yeah, it was a strange collection. Like, I'm looking here at another uh, cover, the Marvel, Bumper, and ALF comic. He apparently had graduated to getting joint top billing, um, which had Fantastic Four, it had Tom and Jerry, it the Hulk, Defenders of the Earth, real no. Ghostbusters... Um, yeah, a lot of just anything that they had the license for really got stuck
0: into that. Oh man, but of course, in the 90s, you know, Marvel in the US was glutting the market and it sort of fell apart. That definitely happened with Marvel UK. Like, I remember reading that there was one book, Royd Rage number one, that was canceled while at the printer. Uh, so a, a dark, a dark time in the universe, or at least in the UK. But the era we're going to be talking about in this episode is a bit before that. We're going to go back to the early 90s, and we are going to be talking about the Death's Head 2 miniseries, which is a goddamn delight.
1: And we're going to kick that off with Death's Head 2, Issue 1, The Wild Hunt, Part 1, Mergers and Acquisitions. It was written by Dan Abnett, it's penciled by Liam Sharp, inked by Andy Lanning and Bambus Giorgio, colored by Helen Stone, and letters by Perry Godbold.
0: Dan Abnett, Uh, we covered some of his work in a past episode. Specifically, he wrote the X-Men Star Trek Next Gen comic that we talked about in our Star Trek episode.
1: Yeah, and he's done a ton of um, stuff with Andy Lanning at Marvel. Uh, Most of it was around the kind of Annihilation, Guardians of the Galaxy, Nova, kind of cosmic side of things. Um, They worked together for many, many years. I understand that they may be on the outs with each other at this point in time. I don't know the details of that, but certainly they're they're not writing as a unit at this at this point in time. Um, but they were, you know, thirty years together as a, a creative pair in the in the business. And Dan Abnett does seem to be a massive fan, specifically of Death's Head Two, because Death's Head Two and Death's Head Two characters turn up in a lot of Abnett and Lanning material there's a couple of issues of Nova from 2008 I think it is issues 17 and 18 of Nova which is a secret invasion tie-in which after you've listened to this and if you go and read the Death's Head 2 mini you don't have to but if you want to and you can then go back to see um, supporting characters from this mini series being used as supporting characters in an issue of Nova that came out
0: fifteen years after this Death's Head 2 mini did. Man, it's it's so much fun. And uh, I should say before we get too much farther, we keep saying Death's Head 2. The character is kinda sorta called Death's Head 2. There's also kinda sorta a Death's Head 1. The difference between them is instrumental to the plot of this comic, so don't worry, we we got you listeners.
1: Yeah, so let's talk a little about Death's Head. Because Death's Head is, as we've mentioned in the cold open, he is this intergalactic bounty hunter. He's a robot. He's interacted with all sorts of characters from, you know, he basically used to create this kind of grand unified theory of fiction in that he's met, you know, Spider-Man on one hand, but also the Transformers on the other hand, and Doctor Who on this third hand that I've just grown. And he's very kind of business-like he's very laconic he's sarcastic he's um his whole thing is like it's never personal revenge isn't profitable it's all just about who's paying him and so on and he first turned up in a a one-page strip called high noon text right and The only reason it even gets called High Noon Text is because that's, like, in large letters in one of the speech balloons. It doesn't have an actual title on it. But it was done to establish the existence of the character before he appeared in the Transformers strip, which is where he spent most of his sort of initial run. And the reason for that was so that Marvel would own the character. Because if they had dropped him straight into Transformers, then he would have been owned by Hasbro. Whereas putting him in a one-page strip in other Marvel comics, um, before that, meant Death's Head became a Marvel character and they could go and
0: do what they liked with him. How very mercenary, which is appropriate for a character that's kind of a mercenary. Indeed, exactly. It all works out. And I love the design of of Death's Head. He's like this beefy robot dude, and he's got banded metal limbs like Colossus. He's got red horns sticking out of his robot head. But the most characteristic part is this kind of mouth vent he has that has these huge upturned spikes on either side. It makes him look kind of like he's got this very tusky underbite. So he manages to be both kind of intimidating and kind of goofy, which, given how lethal he is, makes him more intimidating. I love the design. And to clarify, that's Death's Head 1, the one that was in Transformers. Again, we will disambiguate shortly. <laughs> Indeed.
1: So that this mini is called Death's Head 2, but it picks up with Death's Head 1 at the outset. Death's Head is on a mission at this point
0: in time. He's on a, a world called Tyler's World, looking for... Well, Tyler. Yeah, there's there's no further explanation. Like, I love that the series is just full of these weird little things. It makes the world feel very large and lived in.
1: Yeah, it's a great intro, actually, I think, to Death's Head, because it, it means that we get to see him as a character who has a lot of history behind him. He knows people. He has had interactions with people all across the galaxy. And he is more than happy to bump people off if he's being paid to do so. Uh, it turns out that there is, in fact, a price on Tyler's head. Death's head himself is very kind of uh,
0: callous about the whole thing, really. I think I'll show Tyler the check before I retire him. That way, even if he gets to heaven, he'll be jealous and won't enjoy it.
1: He's so petty. I love him. But he turns up to see this guy hanging by his wrists absolutely covered in his own gore somebody has got there before death's head and there's this cyborg in the room stabbing tyler through the back of the neck with this
0: massive blade arm And this cyborg, who we'll find is named Minion, is terrifying looking. Like, he's got this inhuman golden skull with his own set of horns. And you you can see, this is the creepiest part, you can see these human teeth and gums visible behind the mouth grill of the skull. And you can see, like, his sort of fleshy... Uh, raw flesh around his eyes through the eye holes he's clearly partially organic he's got these red cables and wires connecting the back of his head to his torso he's got lots of pouches he's like if a human corpse and a mechanical demon had a baby that kind of looked like the predator do you think that in the
1: marvel universe minions memes are just utterly terrifying
0: oh god you see a bunch of middle-aged uh white women on facebook just posting like that guy with a you know did i do that kind of caption or something except it's just (laughs) blood and death everywhere (laughs) so the minion
1: cyborg having killed tyler uses a strange phrase which is instincts assimilated which death head marks is not particularly normal thing for somebody to say But the Minion Cyborg says Tyler was number 103 and that he'll see Death's Head again very soon. But he's got another appointment to go to first. So he teleports out to 2020
0: AD, the far future year. Yep. Uh, I mean, you know, the comic was published in 1992... This is the alternate future of Earth-8410, for those keeping track. I don't know that we're going to cover every reality number because there are a lot of timelines in this comic, but I at least tried when we started. (laughs) So this is AIM, usual Marvel
1: setup, Advanced Idea Mechanics, but it's their HQ in the year 2020. And it's run by the scientist who created Dominion Project. And this is a woman called Dr. Evelyn Necker. And we're going to be seeing a lot of her in many different senses, as this miniseries goes on. At the moment, she's got this green strappy
0: bodysuit and massive, giant pink hair. She looks pretty fabulous, frankly. I feel like if you're that good of a scientist, you've probably kind of got the hair product thing unlocked. You've got that figured out.
1: Yeah, that's probably what they started with. They'd start with something that's going to give her style and volume and hold, whilst at the same time working on, you know, the murderous cyborg thing. That's a kind of side project whilst they get all the grooming products sorted out.
0: AIM is actually just a follow-up project to AHM, Advanced Hair Mechanics.
1: <laughs> yeah, and then after that it's going to be AJM, which will be like Advanced Jelly Mechanics. I don't know. That's going to be... It's going to get weirder as it goes on. Advanced Koala Mechanics are going to be amazing. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah, they've all got robot chlamydia. Yeah, exactly. Good fun fact there about koalas for you. So the AIM board are sitting around in a virtuality meeting. I mean, it basically, it it genuinely is 2020 because they're all sitting around meeting virtually with each other. And they're talking about the Minion project. It turns out that AIM's precogs discovered that AIM was going to be destroyed at some point in the near future. So they commissioned Dr. Necker to build this protector, this robot cyborg thing that would effectively become invincible by assimilating the most deadly warriors in the galaxy. And this is because nobody who works for AIM has ever read a story before and don't realize a closed loop when they see one. But (laughs) anyway. So Minion heads off to the year 2456 AD, to take out target number 104, a guy called Ledrox, who's this big, blue, hairy, forearm barbarian,
0: you know, dude. And Ledrox, uh, in this far future time, is busy having tied up a pink lady named Phaedra, who can tell the future, and is wearing the tiniest of barely attached bikinis, a trend that we're going to see a lot more of. I started out being a little annoyed at the fact that Every single female character in this comic is wearing practically nothing most of the time. But it happened so much that eventually it just became more and more hilarious every time it happened. I don't know if that's kind of a objectification Stockholm syndrome or what, but but there you go. I love this miniseries and that is a part of it. So there you have it.
1: Yeah, it is almost like they looked at Psylocke and what she was wearing and thought, she must be absolutely sweltering in that. (laughs) <laughs> cut some of it out. Next time Phaedra shows up, by the way, she's going to be in the Death Head 2 ongoing series, and she'll be somehow wearing even less than she is here. Like, it eventually gets down to she pretty much is wearing, like, three sticky plectrums, as far as I can tell, that she's just tit-taped onto herself.
0: Yeah, the thermostat got screwed up, the heat is stuck at, like, 89 degrees, you do what you have to on that planet.
1: Yeah, exactly. So Ledrox is trying to get Phaedra to foretell his future because she's got precog powers herself. But ah, Minion turns up and Minion, as he says, has got some plans of his own.
0: Allow me to enlighten you, Ledrox. You're going to die very shortly at the hands of a cyborg from the 21st century. And that's exactly
1: what happens he says it, he does it, he stabs him in the back of the neck, absorbs Lidrox's skills, which I imagine are just being large. And there's a great bit about halfway through the fight where um, Minion gets punched and half of his like mouth grill breaks off. So you see his human teeth a bit more clearly on, on one side. And that is Death's
0: Head 2's look for the rest of the character's existence. It's fantastic yeah yeah I always wondered about that. like it always kind of bothered me the asymmetry because I just knew death's head to from uh trading cards. That was my mm. only exposure, and I remember that specifically annoying me, and now I love it. just that little bit of chaos in this perfect cyborg. it works so well for like the way the character goes, yeah, absolutely
1: um but he's he's not death's head yet, of course, I did refer to him as deaths head too the but he's not quite there yet. Phaedra on the other hand. Is not quite so tied to this moment in time. And she's grateful that Ledrox is dead and she kind of teleports away. But as she's teleporting away, she thanks Minion, and calls him Death's Head.
0: Hmm. Well, from there, we go back to AIM HQ, AIM HQ, in the year 2020. And that's where Death's Head. One, the one from Transformers, has used a tracker device and has found Minion. He's pretty pissed at Minion because Minion stole his bounty by killing that bounty. He killed Tyler. There's a great big fight. Yeah, and
1: it is not a fight that goes well for Death's Head. Death's Head gets roundly annihilated. He's smashed to pieces. He's decapitated. And he gets assimilated because, you see, when Minion mentioned that there was... Another appointment he had to go to, but then he would see Death's Head later. That's because Death's Head was number 105 on Minion's list.
0: Exactly. But this time it goes very differently as Minion uses his blade arm to impale Death's Head in the face. Minion gets sort of zapped. There's just electricity everywhere. His liquid metal right arm just transforms uncontrollably into a bunch of different stuff. His eye has smoke come out of it. And then he just goes right back to his mission— To find number 106.
1: Yeah. And one thing we didn't mention about Death's Head previously. Is that he has a very specific verbal tick. And as Minion disappears. He says. I'll be back. Yes. That yes. That is the thing that Death's Head always does. So. Uh oh. SpaghettiOs. He is. Something's going
0: on with this head in Minion's head. Dr. Necker's pretty concerned about this as she follows that teleportation beam to 1992, Earth-616. But she's a professional. She can't travel in the strappy bodysuit that she's wearing, oh no. No, she has to get absolutely butt-naked on panel.
1: The only reason that you can't see her full bare breasts on panel is because she's reaching across her own chest in one uh, panel. It is, I mean, gratuitous does not really even begin to cover it, particularly given that what she gets changed into is a tiny bikini and lots of little random straps and pouches and belts and things, and for some reason a gas mask because
0: uh, because everything is somebody's fetish. yep i mean the outfit looks kind of awesome while making no sense and being objectifying i don't know i just i I, i've been so taken in by the bizarre aesthetic of this comic that i don't even know how to react to anything like this anymore
1: yeah so it turns out that target number 106 the last name on the list is reed richards it's mr fantastic and marvel uk books around this time almost universally featured US characters as guest stars, presumably to boost sales. Uh so hence the inclusion of the noted nineteen nineties hot character Reed Richards. I'm I'm not sure that I mean you might have gotten a little more, more mileage out of Target one hundred six Ghost Rider.
0: well reed richards it is he's even right there in the title of death's head two number two the wild hunt part two reed richards dies tonight written again by dan abnett penciled by liam sharp inked by andy lanning colored by helen stone and lettered by carolyn steaton and perry godbold this reed richards actually at least visually is kind of hot that 90s double i don't know it works for him he is waiting for the Invisible Woman, Sue Richards, his wife, at a fancy French restaurant. Um, and I like this little bit. I like that the comic, despite being this punch him up blast him up death-everywhere comic, takes the time to have Reed and Sue have a phone conversation where she says that she'll be late and he's really chill about it. They are such a healthy couple. I love them so much. They, I, I aspire to that. I think we we all should. So Sue doesn't show up. Who does show up is a pink-haired woman in a gas mask and a green bikini. Don't fancy French restaurants have have bouncers or bouncers, maybe? I think, looking at the art
1: of this issue, they apparently have John Cleese waiting the tables for them.
0: Yeah, I hope it's John Cleese before he got all weird politically online. It was the 90s, -hmm. probably better. Maybe better. Evelyn introduces herself to Mr. Fantastic. My name is Evelyn. Evelyn Necker. My mother's name was Evelyn.
1: I'm not your mother.
0: I can see that.
1: And that's the point at which Minion turns up, he breaks into the restaurant in his traditional way, i.e. through a wall, and chases them out into the streets because Reed being, Reed being a good superhero wants to make sure that civilians aren't in danger. And that leads to a cool chase fight thing where reed steals a cab dr necker jumps in liam sharp does a cracking job with this i love the panel in which Reed just
0: drives straight into minion bounces him into the air terrific bit of comedy oh it's great i really like liam sharp we've only covered a tiny bit of liam sharp on the podcast there was um x-men unlimited number five which was that story where like storm and forge and jubilee are on the cree homeworld and the art was just so like earthy and textured and detailed and human it was great um and then he also did that sunset grace issue of x-men where scott and gene have just gotten back from the adventures of cyclops and phoenix and they meet a random woman on the beach who's got powers that are going out of control i remember jay really hating the art in that maybe it was the inker. i don't know but liam sharp is great in this like it's it's very 90s style i think especially the, the inking that um that andy lanning does is very 90s style but it's just it's just so fun you can just sink your teeth into that
1: that Sunset Grace issue, people want to go back and have a look at that. There is a page in that, a splash page in that, where Scott and Jean are standing on a cliff edge, and if you look at the cliff face, it's Death's Head 2's face. Mount rushmore into the side of the mountain.
0: That is awesome. Oh, God, you know, I think, I think I vaguely remember that. I just, I don't know that I remember that it was Death's Head 2. I just thought it was a weird skull. That is awesome. Oh, man, what's also awesome is The Thing. So Reed Richards is in this. Susan Richards is in this. Of course, Ben Grimm is in this. And we come to him smoking a cigar and dancing in his bathrobe at home to I Heard It Through the Grapevine, which is a delight. Like, Ben Grimm is one of my favorite beings in fiction every time he shows up. But he sees a news report about the place that the Richardses were going to have dinner having been attacked And so he, you know, stops dancing, gets out of his bathrobe and into his usual The Thing Speedo, and finds the aftermath of this car chase. He finds Reed with Dr. Necker in his Stretch arms near a burning cab. And I love the way Ben enters the conversation here. Hey, Stretch, who's a tomato? I... I don't know if that's a thing people actually said in old timey times, but it is so goddamn charming. I think rereading that,
1: because I had to go back and have a look at what on earth he was talking about. I think it's because he's, uh, Reed is very tightly clutching Dr. Necker in his stretchy coils. And they're having a bit of a look at each other kind of moment. I think she's
0: blushing is what he's Ah. trying to suggest. Okay, gotcha. It's not an Attack of the Killer Tomatoes reference. That's fine, I guess. So, there is a big fight when Minion catches up. The Thing holds off Minion, and it starts out okay. I mean, Ben is an ex-Super League wrestler, as he points out, but ends up with him being tossed off a bridge in a tall, vertical panel where we see his entire fall complete with a descending speech balloon.
1: My sweet Aunt
0: Petunia! So good! Just to keep
1: this within a wrestling metaphor, the thing jobbing to Minion in Minion's first appearance
0: is basically a straightforward way of building some cheap heat. I don't know much about wrestling, but that sounds right. Reed and Necker do get to safety, despite Ben having been uh, ejected from the fight rather forcibly, And Reed figures out what's going on from Dr. Necker's exposition. So since Death's Head was a robot instead of a person, when Minion absorbed Death's Head, Death's Head just downloaded himself into Minion's body and partially took over. There are still 105 personalities inside the Minion body, but the Death's Head personality, number 105, is now the dominant one. And Reed's actually met Death's Head. Death's Head's been all over continuity— and knows that Death's Head is like, you know, he's all right. He's not like a super horrible murderer the way Minion seems to be. So Reed figures, the two of them should help the Death's Head personality take over even more.
1: Yeah, at this point, I think he's actually met Death's Head twice. Once in an issue of Death's Head and once in an issue of FF. And they're not two characters that I would have put next to each other at a wedding reception table or anything like that, but they seem to be fairly copacetic with each other and and that's great um necker herself is a bit less uh, concerned i would say about death's head as a person and certainly she's a lot less concerned about you know the collateral damage or, or civilians that, that may be affected by it she's pretty much just wanting to protect what she's calling her investment which is the minion cyborg itself and it's not a way for her to ingratiate herself with Reed Richards. He's not impressed with this at all.
0: But for her part, she's happy to have met a legend. There's a great panel of her kissing him on the cheek with a smack as he just looks incredibly annoyed at her, at her direction.
1: I'm kind of disappointed that the sound effect is smack and not smack. Smack is the official FX of cheek pecks throughout Comicdom, surely.
0: Oh, yeah, no, we saw a great example of that in that Frank Punisher meets Carl the Executioner story. Uh, but Dr. Necker encourages Reed. Reed is an amazing thinker, an amazing mind, an amazing hero. I mean, that's why she sent the minion robot to kill and absorb him. You were in the past. I kind of figured you was dead anyhow. Oh, Dr. Necker, you are the best at being the worst. And when Minion shows up later and Reed having prepared Zap's minion with his science ray... It works. Death's Head as a personality mostly takes over this new minion body and decides, because this uh, programming to absorb people is still active, that if he needs Reed's personality and skills, he could just download it from Reed's nearby computer. He doesn't need to kill Mr. Fantastic. And so he does. And then teleports away. And Evelyn Necker follows, uh, just as the rest of the Fantastic Four charge in. It's kind of hilarious. It's very, very sweet. There is a great moment where
1: Sue is very pleased that Reed is safe, but she also would like to know why he has Evelyn Necker's lipstick mark on his cheek. And it is a proper Reed's, you got some explaining to do kind of moment. <laughs> yep. But the question then remains, where is Minion going? Or indeed, where is Death's Head going? And it turns out that he's going into... Death's Head 2 issue 3, The Wild Hunt Part 3 Outlaws, written by Dan Abnett, penciled by Liam Sharp, inked by Andy Lanning, colored by Helen Stone, and lettered by Perry Godbold. The cover of this is, well, it's Death's Said 2 wearing this barbarian outfit, and he's posing with this kind of scantily clad barbarian woman with a sword in a forest. This is not the time-traveling superheroes comic you've just been reading oh, this is where it gets weird and great. So Minion is off to the year 3442 AD. The world is Lionheart. Uh, The timeline, should you wish to make a note of it, is Earth 12892. It's the throne world of something that calls itself the Human Protectorate. Effectively, it's a deliberately medieval world where technology is outlawed ever since the robot wars. And instead, people ride around on dinosaurs. Yes, they ride around on dinosaurs.
0: I love everything you just said so much. It's
1: amazing. So we pick up at the beginning of this issue with this caravan of nuns who get attacked by a guy calling himself The Hood. And by The Hood, we mean not the guy from, you know, Parker Robbins with the the guns and the big cape. This is an earlier guy calling himself the Hood, by which we mean it's Death's Head too, and his merry men. Yes, he is doing a future, past Robin Hood thing, but it turns out that the nuns are totally ready for him. They are locked and loaded.
0: Lord, protect us and preserve us, sisters. We are under attack. There's only one thing for it lock and load and blow those stinking robot outlaws apart no prisoners no prisoners i love you marvel uk it's brilliant the two panels
1: one of all these nuns just sitting in the back of a wagon and then literally the very next panel is the same picture but they've all got massive guns that they pulled out of absolutely nowhere it's phenomenal but the nuns have got their own problems it turns out that one of the nuns is actually a traitor to them and she actually wants to join Death Head 2. This character's name is Tuck. She is going to be a big part of Death's Head 2's story um, from now on. She's essentially going to be his sidekick on an ongoing basis. And she's called Tuck because I, I guess she's
0: part of a religious order and a nun is kind of like a friar, kind of. Yeah, I I love how this story makes a vague stab at doing some Robin Hood parallelism and symbolism and then just really doesn't sweat the small stuff at all because it's death's head and there is way too much chaos to really worry too much about details. Yeah, exactly. So she's got blades in her hair. She's got the top
1: of her face is painted black. The left-hand side of her face is painted blue. Mostly her limbs are bandaged up and that Counts for, I would say, probably sixty percent of the fabric she's wearing. She's kind of, uh, she's kind of like a typical nineties bad girl, badass kind of character, but at the same time, she's also way less prone to doing very nineties, super cool stuff than a lot of those characters were. Tuck played the straight man to Death's Head 2's comedian pretty constantly and so she was always the one who was more grounded and more sensible to be honest given her look the existence of tuck as a character kind of makes me wonder if karen gillen got cast in the mcu too early
0: because she would be perfect for this role oh man she totally would you're right i mean i love her as nebula certainly but you can double cast people i mean chris evans has been everyone he's been captain america he's been the human torch he's talked about eating babies on snowpiercer Yeah, he's done so many comics adaptations. I would like to see them all cross over with each other.
1: Every comic book adaptation that Chris Evans has been in, up to and including Snowpiercer and The Losers, should all just cross over with each other. Actually, I love this plan. It would be like a Tyler Perry movie. (laughs) (laughs) So Tuck's own plan is that she wants to join up with Death Head 2. She wants to fight the authorities that run the planet whilst the king is away fighting in his space crusades. Turns out that it's very much like the Roman Hood setup, up where there is a corrupt regime has been left behind and are very busy kind of lining their own pockets. Deathhead Head 2 has arrived on Lionheart. He's been here for a year. All his gang, his merry men are either cyborgs or robots. And Lionheart, as we mentioned before, it's a world where technology effectively is outlawed. So, Deathhead Two has been leading this kind of Robo Cyborg Tech uprising for the best part of a year.
0: I mean, not particularly successfully, given there only seem to be about six of them. But still, he's he's having a good go at it. And I love this world. The more we we see of it, Liam Sharp does such a fun combination of medieval aesthetics and sci-fi technology. I almost wish the whole miniseries was just set on Lionheart. But part of the fun of this miniseries is that it just hops across time and timelines and worlds constantly and without warning. So I don't know, leave them wanting more. I feel like that's a good writing strategy right there.
1: Yeah. And there is a a definite aesthetic to this, to the extent that when Death's Head does eventually revisit this world much later, you don't even need a lot of introduction to it because you go, oh, we're on Lionheart now, this is, we know this place, this is the, the medieval, no tech, all that kind of thing. It do, It's done so well, it's so um, comprehensively designed, which for something that is only in it for one issue is kind of amazing, like I, I don't know how they like do this so well.
0: Yeah. I mean, Dan. credit to Dan Abnett for this wonderfully bonkers plot, but Liam Sharp just aesthetically defines all of these different eras so clearly. You always know which timeline you're in, and that's not an easy thing to do.
1: No, oh, absolutely. So Tuck is, as she reveals to Death Head 2, a replicated organic herself. She was basically a synthetic life form. She was sold into prostitution. She got out of that. She... Is wanting to take down the Lord High Protector and the other members of the the ruling elite because this is not the way the world should be. So we get to see the Lord High Protector, who is in this fortress citadel. And speaking of nice touches by Liam Sharp, uh, UK fans may want to note that the Lord High Protector, the corrupt. Uh, leader of the Robin Hood style world has been drawn to look exactly like the actor Forbes Collins who played King John in Tony Robinson's Maid Marian and Her Merry Men which is a deep cut but it's very funny when you see it anyway so the Lord High Protector respect (laughs) so the Lord High Protector gets this news and he's not particularly pleased he is in the literal and metaphorical ivory tower you know it's basically this kind of fantasy paradise you know except for you know all the slaves and stuff but outside it is this weirdly shaped metal structure it's got these kind of randomly placed bubble windows it looks like a mutant insect it's incredible
0: it's so good. And like above it in the sky, you see that that Marvel Universe style version of space that is just full of a bunch of colorful planets and nebulas and stuff. I, I just I love the setting so much.
1: So he explains his plan to his guest.
0: He's going to send the best tracker stroke assassin. Track assassin ass tracker. Maybe not that last one. He's going to send them after hood anyway. But as for who the guest is, well... Lady Evelyn Clarice Necker of AIM.
1: Clarice, that's my mother's name. I do love a recurring bit. (laughs) Same. (laughs) So our outlaw heroes share a recap of issues one and two. And at that point, Major Oak and his Huskarls attack. Major Oak is a big... He's a mutant, basically. He's a... Big strapping dude who can adapt to any attack that gets thrown at him. Um, he turns up and just basically starts slaughtering people left, right, and centre. It's an extremely violent scene. Um, and his huskarls are doing exactly the same thing. Now, you don't get enough huskarls in comics, I would say, or really anywhere. I had to look up what a huskarl was. <laughs> what, what is a huskarl? A huskarl is a non-servile servant it is a bodyguard effectively it's it's like if you had, a, had extremely violent butler who didn't
0: do any butling okay well well good for them i mean except for all the all the murder parts mm. uh so evelyn watches this battle with the lord high protector and as she does she changes into her battle one-piece swimsuit again totally on panel and just bonks him over the head and then blast the leader of the Huscarls with a laser rifle that would make Cable proud, while riding a giant saber-toothed tiger. Like, more of this world, please. At this point, Death's Head 2 is effectively his
1: own man, and is getting used to the fact that his name is Death's Head, really. So Tuck backs him up against Dr. Necker with, you know, a sword. And because the programming that Dr. Necker has instilled on him is apparently not going to cut it, she offers him three million, you know, credits or whatever it is that they use instead.
0: And he demands five because he's still Death's Head. Yup. Now, as all of this is going on, on this amazing world full of dinosaurs and laser rifles and stuff like that, Back in 2020, AIM headquarters has not been empty. In fact, we saw some of this at the end of the last issue. We met Death's Head's old partner, Spratt, who, from what I can tell, not having read much Death's Head 1, is kind of Death's Head's Jimmy Olsen.
1: Yeah, he's basically like if Jimmy Olsen was morally extremely flexible
0: and Superman found him extremely irritating. That follows. That said, there was at least some connection because Spratt sheds a single tear as he sees the wreckage of Death's Head's body in the Robo I love that AIM HQ has a, has a Robo Morgue. But when Spratt then hires a cyber tech to repair Death's Head, well, that goes poorly because he hires Baron Strucker V, the great, great, great grandson of noted Nazi jerkwad Baron Wolfgang von Strucker, and I guess the great, great. nephew of of fenris those those shits and baron strucker quickly takes over the whole operation smashing sprat in the face and forcing him to work for him and work they do they have death's head's body such as it is it's just in pieces right now torn apart and strung up like it's super gross there are cables and these organic looking innards all strewn about
1: yeah it's pretty horrific but strucker is he's got a plan and he wants to do something which is combination of techno and mystical, which is actually Deathhead's Head's origin. He was created as a combination of mystical and um, technological components to be the host body for a guy called Lupex. And it's a whole other story. It's also a Marvel Unlimited. It's called The Body in Question. Go look it up. Anyway, Strucker's using all this combination tech and mystical stuff to do Something. And Sprat is interested to find out what that is. What... what have you done? I have completed the mechanoid. I have fused the twin sciences of cybernetics and necromantics, and I have forged for myself an instrument of vengeance from the lifeless shell that was Death's Head.
0: I meant... what have you done to yourself, Baron? And I love this. Strucker turns and reveals his new face as he says, I have become death. And on one side of his face, he's all demonic. And on the other side, he's basically got Death's head's robo face, complete with that one tusk thing. It is chilling. And
1: I genuinely, I can't stress enough what a big deal this was when it was published for UK fans, at least anyway. Death's head was a key Marvel uk character it was a character that marvel uk readers had followed for years through comics like transformers and so on and to effectively have his body recycled into this villain's horrific creation pretty much sealing the door on any possibility of the original Death head coming back this was a big strong signal that this was a brand new paradigm death's head as a character
0: yeah so going forward death's head 2 although he just goes by death's head that is the personality of death's head in the body of minion is the character and of course this is a character that shunts around time so we'll still see the original death's head here and there in other points in this timeline but yeah no no take backsies
1: death's head 2 and dr necker and tuck decide that, well, we'll need to go and sort out whatever's happening at AIM back in 2020, because, you know, that was the whole reason why the Minion Project was done in the first place. So they transport themselves back there, and they find a bunch of screaming green skeletons fused into the walls and the floor. It's extremely event horizon, and Dr. Necker was far too late. And whoever did this is on their way to 1992.
0: And they're getting to 1992 by way of Death's Head 2 Number 4, The Wild Hunt Part 4, 2020 Vision. Written by Dan Abnett, penciled by Liam Sharp, inked by Andy Lanning and Liam Sharp, colored by Helen Stone, and lettered by Perry Godbold. And, uh, yeah, before we get to 1992, we see what else is going on in 2020. And, uh, a lot has changed. This new creation, this new fusion of Strucker and Death's Head and whatever is called Charnel, and Charnel has taken over the world. And we learn about this through the narration, which is Punisher's War Journal. Uh, We also learn that Charnel just killed the Asgardians, so that's how tough this dude is. And this works really well. The no-nonsense style of narration really just sells how serious this is as does the team of heroes that we see getting together, because it's kind of a weird, unexpected bunch. There's Daredevil with stubble, of course, and an assault rifle. There's Spider-Man back in his black costume with a ponytail sticking out. There's Doctor Strange, but he's really old. Uh, And there's the Punisher with a bunch of cyber nonsense on his outfit. These are not characters that would typically hang out very much. Like We see them cross over occasionally, but seldom cooperating. So... When you have this disparate group working together without question, it really illustrates just how desperate things have gotten.
1: And there are some terrific moments in the first few pages here, which really make the best of the pre-existing relationships between the characters. You know, there are fantastic moments of interaction between Spidey and Doctor Strange, between the Punisher and Daredevil. The whole thing is so well put together. It is one of my favorite openings to an issue of, I think, probably anything ever. It's a terrific setup.
0: Oh, it really, really is. And it doesn't take long for things to get darker still, because Charnel himself arrives. And he looks different, kind of like a cross between Diablo and De Lobster? Diablobster? Diabster? Diablobster? I don't know. Charnel, I guess. But, uh, yeah, the, the battle goes fucking terribly spider-man does manage to web shoot away charnel's time travel medallion because charnel is busy killing dr strange and in fact charnel kills literally all of these characters in the first five pages of this issue he kills the punisher dr strange daredevil and spider-man all of our heroes are dead what a strong opening like if you want to sell how powerful a villain is like yeah these aren't the earth 616 versions of these characters but still
1: yeah, it's so well done. And I love the moment where Daredevil dies in the Punisher's arms and the Punisher is so caught up about it. Like, he is mm-hmm. massively upset to have lost this guy who he sees as being one of his closest friends now because this is the the world that has brought them together. It's it's so well done and it's it's a fantastic moment. But there is obviously gonna be other characters in this because it'd be a very short issue otherwise so we get to see what the avengers in very heavy air quotes are in
0: 2020 yeah we have some standbys there's captain america the scarlet witch there's she hulk and you guessed it a ripped up skimpy outfit and we also have wolverine uh this may be one of his first appearances as an avenger and we have the rhino you know the villain who's dating the she hulk and there's also Mr. Fantastic. Welcome back, Reed. But in this timeline, he's been turned into putty by Charnel's magic. He's just this tangled mess of distorted flesh in this green orb, who's just sort of there as an advisory capacity. And like you get a look at his face at one point, it's all stretched out. It's it's super gruesome. And this is a good choice to have a mix and match of all these various characters, even a villain. Same as before, it just really shows how desperate things have gotten and just how few superpowered characters are even left alive in this timeline. Yeah, and it, it really implies a
1: lot of other stories that we haven't seen. So, for example, yeah. Reed as Reed a, a putty guy in a floating tank, there is an entire story there which we don't get to see, but it fills in a, a richness into that world. It's really
0: well done. I think that's one of the biggest strengths of this entire series. Like, it's all over the place. It goes to so many different timelines, visiting so many different versions of so many different characters. And like, yeah, you get the impression all of them have their own stories. Like, all of these characters have these these histories and these relationships. And yes, they all have their stories end in pretty much the same way. Like, the bad guy of this series kills so many people but like that just makes it all the more tragic that just makes the stakes all the higher i i love it like i never expected to get so invested in a comic that has so many goofy moments but like i genuinely care about everything that's happening here
1: yeah it's done really really well but going back to 1992 we've got death's head we've got tuck and we've got dr necker and they are kicking around in this abandoned shopping mall which is owned by AIM and it's going to eventually be the AIM HQ and Deathhead thinks it's hilarious that it's a shopping mall.
0: Hmm, I hope this diabolical menace brings some charge cards.
1: And this really annoys Dr. Necker, like their stakes could not be higher and Deathhead is making jokes. Tuck though, fair play to Tuck, she is loyal to Deathhead, Head and she steps in to defend him. That's just his way, Dr. Necker. Just his way? Tuck. This guy has a head full of 105 different personalities.
0: How do you know what he's like? That's kind of a fun thing about Death's head, is that he's this this amalgam. And it's not always clear that that's the case, so I kind of appreciate a a uh, a tell-don't show every once in a while for that. But suddenly, the future Avengers show up because... What Frank Punisher and his team did, the sacrifice they made, was largely to get that time travel device from Charnel's body to the other heroes. And they've now come back to 1992 in hopes of rewriting history and preventing their dark future from occurring. There's a brief fight, because of course there is, but that quickly turns into introductions, thanks to Captain America's cool head. He serves as Peacemaker.
1: Tuck, I've never met. As for... Evelyn Clarice Sarah Necker. Well, Sarah was my mother's name, but that's as far as that goes. But death's said, I've heard of you.
0: I love that gag. I love that Dr. Necker gets, like, an additional name that is someone's mom's name literally every time she shows up. It's so good. So there's a big team-up, and just in time, because Charnel arrives. But not the de Blobster version we saw before— This is the initial version that's just sort of this horrific Frankenstein mix of science and sorcery, of robot flesh and demon flesh and Strucker flesh. Again, Liam Sharp is so good at highlighting which characters are from which timeline at which time, even when they're all crossing over. It's great. It's so effective. It's a properly planned aesthetic for the different
1: time periods, for the different characters. Liam Sharp is at a pretty early stage of his career here, but you can already see that he is going to be a terrific artist in years to come. And even with the, the fact that you've got Avengers from the future, you've got characters from the present day, you're never going to mistake these future Avengers for, you know, modern day versions or I say modern day 1992 versions of the Avengers because Liam Sharp has
0: captured that so well very much so and there's something about seeing all these disparate characters from disparate timelines that makes the brutal fight that occurs here all the more brutal heroes are just dying and almost dying left and right uh she hulk's shredded tiny outfit and two words of dialogue are are not enough to save her but that that's actually really sad like rhino who you know is in a relationship with her cries he talks about how they fought side by side against charnel for 20 years now the monster finally did what he'd been trying to do again all these implied stories it's great and at the end of the fight when the scarlet witch in like a last ditch hail mary tries to mystically finish off charnel he just drains her hex power and that is what turns him into that big red demonic lobster devil so just like dr necker accidentally fulfilled the destruction of aim while trying to prevent it by making minion the future Avengers accidentally created the version of Charnel that destroyed their timeline and they came to hate. It's all of these horrible, self-fulfilling prophecies with people trying to fix things and just making them go bad in the first place.
1: Yeah, there's an issue of What If, which was done by Simon Furman and Jeff Sr., who were uh, two guys who did a ton of stuff with Death's Head, and the story was What If uh, Death's Head 1 had survived. And what ends up happening in that is that um, Death Head Two just skips over Death Head One, stays as being minion, kills Reed Richards, and it ends up that Charnel still exists anyway, and the minion cyborg is what becomes the, the Charnel body, and it's up to Death Head One to, to kill the, the Death Head Two cyborg, and loads of Avengers and other Marvel superheroes die, including the entirety of the FF. So either way, Charnel was going to cause the deaths of a lot of people here, but it's just a bit of a tragedy. You know, there, there was no way that any of them could really avoid any of this happening. But they still have to come up with some way to try to save the future of 2020. And that
0: is where Death's Head 2 has to come up with a plan. And I love the way this plays out. He grabs the stolen time device from 2020, the one that Frank Punisher died to get, and just jumps up and clicks it on the chest of Charnel right next to his existing time device. And that's where the Scarlet Witch is able to do something that does work. She uses her powers to to, to activate each time device separately, sending one to prehistory and one to the 30th century, and each of them takes half of Charnel. With them. That is a hell of a finishing move, and I love it. It
1: is superb. Like, properly just wishboning Charnel in half and flinging the different bits of him off to the other ends of time. Terrific. What a way to take a bad guy out.
0: Oh, it's great. But of course, we have some tragedy with it because the way the time stream works in this series, and of course, it works differently in different Marvel stories. But the way it works in this series, the version of the year 2020 that this Scarlet Witch was from no longer exists. It no longer happened because Charnel was killed in 1992. And so she just kind of fades away but has no regrets. So, yeah, the version of the year 2020 that Dr. Evelyn Nucker was trying to save, well, now it has been. And she's all about bringing Minion, which is to say Death's Head, who she keeps calling Minion, back to pay him, to put him back under her employ, that sort of thing. Death's Head, on the other hand, has
1: gotten quite fond of this whole being an adventurer thing, and so he would rather just go off and see what life has to offer him in 1992. Come on, Tuck. Let's get lost in America. And you get the Avengers, the FF, you get Ghost Rider, you get the Hulk. They're all drawn by various police reports or temporal readings or whatever, and the series ends with them all just chasing death's heads and tucks stolen semi-truck into manhattan
0: what a delight this whole series and from here it goes into well by way of some marvel uk tie-ins in the meantime but it goes into the death's head 2 ongoing where he teams up with the x-men and teams up with lots of other people it's all really fun but this miniseries, for me i haven't read very much marvel uk at all But this seems to be a distillation of some of the best parts of it. And I'm so glad you introduced me to this, Al. It's something that I think people should get to to know exists.
1: It's not widely available, a lot of it, although they have reprinted bits and pieces of it here and there, and there are scraps of it on Marvel Unlimited. But it's a chapter of Marvel's history that is overlooked a lot of the time and in fairness a lot of the series particularly towards the end of the marvel uk line were not great but there are some gems in there
0: yeah and listeners uh, i recommend this um the first issue of this mini series is on marvel unlimited weirdly the rest aren't but hopefully you can track them down it's worth your time so we have a recommendation for you but you have questions Cecilia asks on Twitter, what would you consider an essential Marvel UK read? Like for someone interested in digging into Marvel UK and not sure where to start? Well, this is a
1: good place to start. Like this mini series definitely is one of the, the top things I would recommend. I also would say if you can get hold of the early issues of the series Warheads, um, which were drawn by Gary Erskine, that is terrific. That's basically about of you know, interdimensional band of grunts who get sent to other worlds to bring back technological doohickeys for an evil corporation. Um, All of the first few issues of the Marvel UK books had fantastic artists working on them. Gary Frank drew the absolute heck out of um, Motor Mouth and Killpower's first few issues, for example. As it goes on, stuff gets a little bit wilder. I, I think the main series that's on unlimited that I would recommend people checking out is a four-issue mini called Mystic Wars which has got all the Marvel UK characters it's got a whole bunch of Marvel US characters it's got a lot of carnage like lowercase c carnage uh no capital c carnage at all weirdly enough for the early 90s and yeah it's a lot of fun definitely worth checking out
0: And of course, uh, Marvel UK did publish the old Captain Britain stuff that uh, I think Dave Thorpe started writing and Alan Moore took over on. Also great, but a very different feel.
1: Meanwhile, Paul McGarvey asks on Twitter, What for you is the difference in tone and approach between a Marvel US and Marvel UK comic?
0: Well, I myself have pretty limited experience here, but the impression I get is that Marvel UK was a little less traditionally superheroic. There was a bit more of a gritty cyberpunk feel, especially to this era, it seems.
1: Yeah, the sci-fi elements are definitely completely integral. They are coming from a tradition of comics that is not superhero-based. UK comics were... Um, you know they were anthology comics they were a lot of humor comics there is always a streak of humor through any UK comic basically even ones that are apparently quite bleak you're going to find jokes in there and the the way that the the Marvel UK books from this particular era um, fitted into the the Marvel US books was they had to kind of shave off a bunch of their sharper and rougher edges and i think that's where they started to fall down the stuff that is more true to itself that is very cyberpunky, that is very sci-fi rather than traditionally super heroic you know things like knights of pen dragon a fantastic series which just got reprinted in omnibus very recently um and another one which is great if you can track it down Um, that's very much based around Knights of the Round Table kind of stuff. And it was only when they started doing this 1992 version of Marvel UK that they decided to try to make that more superheroic. And I don't think it worked terribly well when they did. But certainly the initial version of of Knights of Pendragon, which has got Captain Britain and Diatomas and all kinds of people like that in it, is
0: really good. I have so much more Marvel UK to read in my life. I was looking for another project. I, I think I may have found it. <laughs> so speaking of, of projects, Al, you have done now nine episodes of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men with me. And with Jay coming back soon, I think this is, this is the last one that we'll be doing for now. So yeah. thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure working with you. I've really enjoyed getting to know you and talking about some 90s nonsense from some of the best to some of the worst
1: yeah it has been fantastic thank you so 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 much i've know i said this to you before but thank you so much for asking me on it has been a great honor to be asked to do this and it's been enormous fun like just getting to chat about you know terrible issues of x-factor surprisingly good saber-tooth comics all that kind of stuff terrific thank you so much
0: Oh, absolutely. No, I, uh, th- this could not have gone better. Like it's, it's, it's been a thrill and, um, you know, I was really intimidated with, with Jay leaving, but I, I could not have had a better, uh, partner for, for this period. And, uh, we already have been talking, uh, I will say to the listeners about, uh, having you on for at least one more thing that we're very excited to all three of us talk about. So we'll get to that in the future as well. So this is a, a, a goodbye for now, but certainly not a full farewell. And I'm also just excited to keep in touch in general. Uh, and speaking of uh, keeping in touch with your stuff, so if listeners would like to find the stuff you do that is not a nine-issue stint on Jane Miles Explain the X-Men, where should they look?
1: Uh, HouseToAstonish.com is where you can find House to Astonish, which is the podcast that I do with my co-host, Paul O'Brien. Um, we are now 14 years deep into that show and not letting up anytime soon. We have our own um, kind of sub-show project called The Lightning Round, where we're going through uh, a reread and recap and discussion of the original Thunderbolt series, which has been a huge amount of fun to rediscover. Um, I also have another show called Desert Island Discworld, which if you're a Terry Pratchett fan, please do check that out. It's over at desertislanddiscworld.com. It's basically half biographical interview, half book group. I always pitch it as one guest, one book, one turtle, four elephants. (laughs) <laughs> and, and I also recently did a uh, hosting stint for the brilliant website Shelf Dust, um, where there was a podcast that was run there called The War Effort, where we looked at the original Secret Wars series. And I will say if people enjoyed that, they should probably keep their eyes on the horizons because there may be more in that vein coming at some point.
0: I am so impressed at how prolific you are like podcasting takes a lot of time and effort and that is so much stuff. So yeah listeners highly recommended check out Al's stuff check out the stuff that Al does with Paul and without Paul like it's it's great stuff recommended. So Al I guess we will we will see you on the show again in the future that is is a guarantee and I will talk to you soon as well off the show but with that. Jay and Miles' Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and Edinburgh, Scotland, and is produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon New episodes come out
1: most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and
0: at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode.
1: Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and add free... Check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com, and please rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week is this month's Skip Week, but in two weeks, Jay's back behind the mic for more mutant misadventures.